When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the latest edition of The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined as always by my colleague Stuart Mandel and Stu. This weekend we have actual games. It is officially week zero week. And the biggest game of all, for at least our week zero, is going to be Illinois and Nebraska kicking it all off. And what better way to get it started before we get into the mailbag and get into Stu's Big Ten predictions. We're going to talk to an actual Big Ten expert is former Ohio State star linebacker Joshua Perry from Big Ten Network who was out on the road and visited every Big Ten program in camp and has a lot of insight. We're really glad that he has found time to join us today on The Audible. We are pleased to be joined now by Joshua Perry from the Big Ten Network. You remember him from Ohio State's 2014 National Championship team. He now is part of that crew at BTN with uh, Dave Revson, Jerry DiNardo, Howard Griffith. And we love every preseason. We love checking in with you guys because you get to go to all 14 schools, see what's going on during preseason camp. And we are literally on a Zoom right now and you're in your car. I did not realize you guys don't have the bus this year. How, how is this tour working exactly? Yes, we are busless. Uh, so we have been just kind of doing it the way you would do it, hopping on planes, getting in cars. We even thought about taking a train at one point <laughs> to get from stop to stop. Um, this has not been without issues, though. And, and some of them started early on. We had some trouble leaving our third stop. Uh, we were coming from Wisconsin. We were supposed to be heading to East Lansing. There was some weather, had a flight issue, ended up making that a drive. Um, and then we pulled a similar thing when we were leaving, um, I believe Penn state instead of hopping on the plane. Cause that was getting delayed. We drove to Rutgers, which wasn't a bad drive. Um, and then I, we had the weekend at home. So I'm leaving Columbus and, and heading over to Purdue right now, which is about a four hour trip. So we've been able to manage, got to figure it out. And it's been fun. We got to see a lot of different things that we obviously didn't get to see last year in preseason. So it's really insightful. So you are based, obviously, as people know, you were a great player at Ohio State, and you've been with BTN for a little while now. Uh, Getting to eyeball teams in camp, give us like maybe your two or three biggest, whoa, I didn't expect that from getting to see some of these programs. Yeah, I mean, that's a a wonderful question. I think it starts with Minnesota, who was our most uh, recent stop. So maybe that's a little bit of recency bias, but we just had no idea what to expect from that team after 2020. Uh, because they had so many issues. They had so many guys out for COVID issues. Uh, Tanner Morgan, their quarterback, had some family issues that he was dealing with. And I know it's not easy to play football when you're dealing with some outside issues, but especially the, the quarterback position. Um, and so we didn't know if they were going to be more what we saw in 2019 or what we saw in 2020. And I can tell you right now, I think it's more 2019. I think Tanner Morgan's going to be a lot better. They've got 10 guys on defense who played a lot last year, and a lot of those guys weren't supposed to play. They look really good. Um, I think they're going to be strong there. Both lines of scrimmage are just looking – I can't even describe it. Like, they've got real guys out there physically. Um, So I think they're going to be good. The the other one was Indiana just because of the same kind of curiosity. Are they going to be able to continue this upward trend that they've had over the last couple of seasons? And the answer is yes, and for two reasons is number one, Um, They've got plenty of talent, but number two, that's a coaching staff that has standards. They're demanding, they know how to teach, um, and they're going to coach the best out of players. So if they have any issues this year, it won't be for a lack of coaching or a lack of talent. I I think it's a really well put together program. The final one, and we'll get to see them 
in week zero is Illinois. And when we were leaving Big Ten Media Days, that was the spot where I said, I'm the most curious because you had no idea what things were going to look like. You, you could guess based off of what Brett Bielema has done in the past, but you just didn't know. And they've got a veteran quarterback who is a very talented player who probably makes a few too many mistakes, and he's got to tighten that up. Um, they're going to be good along the lines of scrimmage. I love the, what they have at running back. I think they've got really good linebackers. Um, but their X factor is Brett Bielema got to spend time around Bill Belichick in the NFL. And if there's one coach that you would want to spend some time around from the NFL, it's that guy. And I think he picked up some really good habits. I think he really understood um, what what Bill does as a coach and how he thinks about the game differently. And he's trying to give that to his team. So those three teams in Minnesota, Indiana, and Illinois really kind of stood out to me. Okay, I'm immediately regretting my 3-9 and nine pick for the Illini. <laughs> Whoops. Uh, 20, uh, 22 super seniors, right, yeah. Joshua? 22 yeah, super really seniors? Team. Well, okay, so if those three schools, and, and certainly Illinois and, and Minnesota could get a lot better record-wise, Indiana, you're saying, might be even better. Somebody's got to take a step back. Who, who would that be? Yeah, I mean, that's it's, it's tough, right? And, and you ask the question, of course, and I'm a Buckeye, so people are going to say, of course, he says that, but he asked the question about Michigan and uh, they've got a new defensive coordinator and a new system that they're trying to implement. Um, I think there's still a question of, of is the offense going to be more Josh Gaddis or is it going to be more Jim Harbaugh? Um, they've got Cade McNamara, who's going to be starting football games. And I, I think that he is a very good starting level uh, college quarterback. You know, he's a guy who maybe isn't the most flashy on tape. I think he's a smart player who's going to limit mistakes, which is something that they need. They've had a lot of mistakes at that position. Uh, but you you leave there feeling like this team is ultimately talented enough to be exactly what they want to be in the East. But I don't know if you feel like they've put every single thing together in terms of they're ready to take the next step. I think the players are excited. I think the coaching staff looked organized, but you just left there kind of missing that bit of excitement that you got at other places. So that would be uh, my team in the East. It hurts for me to say this, but in the West, I think Northwestern success, now that they've lost Cam Porter at running back, is going to be largely dependent upon what they can do at the quarterback position. And that's a place that they've struggled over the last handful of years. If it wasn't for Peyton Ramsey making a transfer after Mike Penix had uh, the success that he had at Indiana, I'm not exactly sure what that team would have looked like a year ago. Um, and I'm hoping that those guys are able to put things together. And there were three guys to me at practice that stood out for some really good things, but also looked like players who didn't have a ton of game experience. Um, so they're the one that's kind of the enigma to me. I think they can be solid because that's just what Pat Fitzgerald does. I think the daggone defense is going to be really good. It's just like, and you can say this for a lot of teams, but like the quarterback position is always going to be so important. And I think for them, it's going to be really important this year. Okay. I want to pivot to a school. We don't talk too much about, but it's one that I think, and we haven't talked about this offline, but I think it's one that you may light up a little bit about and they don't get much respect uh, it's Rutgers, yep. right? So Noah Vedral transferred in from Nebraska. I think he did a nice job. But they have what I would categorize, and I watched what you guys did on BTN. You guys like the skill guys, right? So so I'm not saying it's like he's got you know Brian Hartline's receiver room there, but what do you think of the skill talent and how decent can Rutgers be in 2021? Yeah, I mean, the, the skill there, I think they've done a really good job. And it's it's guys that have been there too. It's not like they had a ton of upgrades and brought in a bunch of, you know, college free agents out of the portal or whatever it was. It's Isaiah Pacheco, who's been there for years. We've been calling his name for years. He's been productive for years. It's Aaron Crookshank, who's been there for a couple years now, but he was really productive at Wisconsin. And I think he's really coming into his own as a wide receiver there at Rutgers. It's Bo Melton, who's a guy that we all have talked about as one of the best receivers in the Big Ten Conference. And like you said, Noah Vedral, who is a guy who has some experience under his belt and some battle wounds and some scars that I think has made him kind of shift his paradigm on how he thinks about the game as a leader and a quarterback. Um, I also think defensively they look as good as they have up front. Um, and they've got a couple of guys. Izzy in, in their secondary, I think, is going to be a phenomenal player. 
and they've got Fadakasi, um, who is one of the top linebackers in the conference. I think he's going to be wonderful as well. Greg Schiano was in a really unique position at Ohio State because I think he was still in the NFL paradigm where his defensive inventory, the playbook was really big. And I think he felt the pressure that people feel in Columbus and uh, kind of weighed on him mentally and just how he was able to interact with uh, the players. Now he's in a place where he's super comfortable, where he's had a ton of success. And I think he's renewed just in terms of his energy. That is a team where you don't know exactly what they're going to do because they still got a ways to go. But they will be in some games they probably shouldn't be in simply because I think they're well coached and they're going to be tougher than most of the people they face on their schedule. It's interesting that point because when you said that about Shiano at Ohio State, I remember being a sideline guy and in between drives, you know, where like you have a lot of the, um, you know, the phones and basically an area where the players usually don't congregate because it's just, there's just a lot of like stuff there. Greg would almost be huddled there with like his hands around his head, around his eyes, like kind of tunnel visioning it. He might be on the phone with like Bob Frazier, who's now with him. Yep. Like he was his guy yep. and he's with him at Rutgers. And I just, I just remember thinking it was like, it just seems like this is, there's a lot of clutter right here, right okay. now in terms of, he had all those great players at Ohio State. And I think it was maybe a different transition for him sorting it out from going from NFL to there. Let's talk about that for a sec, because we talked to Greg and I love him to death. I got to know him as a former player coming back and just watching practices and stuff. And I, he's just as genuine of a guy like he didn't owe me anything and, you know, just spent time talking to me and kind of walking me through what his philosophies were and everything. Um, but when I was speaking to him most recently, he's like, you know, I'm a guy who's a tunnel vision guy. The literal words you said when it comes to reading and diagnosing and breaking down and making adjustments. And so his preference was to be up in the booth during games. He wanted to be in the press box so he could see everything develop. And it was, it's a very quiet uh, environment up there. The chaos is done. And Urban wanted him to really be down there on the field because he felt like his presence and his leadership was useful down there. And I don't disagree with that. But I think for Greg, it was really difficult sometimes being right there in the fray, making adjustments in the middle of the game from the sideline. So, I mean, it's, it's a really interesting thing. And I think that experience helped him grow as a coach, obviously in a lot of ways, but you're so right. Like he is a guy who is hyper-focused and he just, he sees a little bit differently, but um, I, I truly think that he is in the best place that he can be and his players have bought into everything that he's given them. In terms of your alma mater, uh, I feel like when we talk about Ohio State going into a season, it's not like there's a wide range of possibilities. But with a new quarterback taking over, um, with some lingering questions from the defense last season, what, what, from what you saw, did you see more of a finished product? This team's ready to contend for a national championship uh, kind of Ohio State team or uh, one that, that has some actual question marks going into a season? Yeah, it was, it was interesting because when we went, CJ was kind of on a, a load management, CJ Stroud type of deal. So he was getting some reps, but he wasn't getting a ton of reps. Um, all of the reps that he was in there for, he looked efficient. He looked confident, the whole deal. Uh, and it's really hard to not feel that way when you've got Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave as some of the veterans. And then you look even to some of the younger players and you've got like a, a Marvin Harrison Jr. type of guy who's going to be really good as a freshman. Um, and an experienced O-line coming back. I think the offense is as good as offenses that we've seen recently. I don't think there's any way that it takes a true step back. Um, and that's without even mentioning the running back room, which I think has three guys, maybe four that can really roll. Um, as I look defensively, I think the, the upgrade has come in terms of health in the secondary. And some guys back now that have played a little bit and have some experience and can use some of those battle scars that they had from last year and those calluses to not make the same mistakes and across the defensive line, which I think will be able to more effectively rush the passer this year. And I, I think the, the criticism falls a lot on the secondary from a year ago. And I can't argue that because they were lackluster in a lot of situations, but you can also flip that and say that there was no Joey Bosa, no Nick Bosa, no chase young type player to force a quarterback into errors that other secondaries have had work to their benefit. 
And so now you've got a Zach Harrison type player who is supposed to be a breakout star. You've got a guy like Haskell Garrett who can rush from the interior who's back. Um, and I think that it's a real upgrade that helps the secondary out because now quarterbacks are going to be under duress and forced into bad situations. Joshua, you were on that national title team that Urban Meyer had. You you came in, you were part of the different regime, then he came in, and you became one of the leaders on that team. I'm curious, you're around the program now as a media member, as a former Ohio State player as well. How different is the vibe inside the building with what, what you played under with Urban compared to now with Ryan Day, who was on his staff at the end, but has obviously put his own spin on it. Yeah, it's so different. And um, I think there's multiple ways to get it done. And that's the beautiful thing about this game is I think Ryan has found something that really works and that the players have taken to and that the coaches love to operate under um, where, you know, when you walk into the facility, it's not go time all the time and it's just a little bit more comfortable to be there, but he also will apply the pressure as soon as it needs to be applied and, and ramp up that energy. Urban's deal was, and this is part of what made him elite is every moment you were in the facility, it was fourth and goal from the one yard line. You know, it's, you got to make the big stop or you got to score. And it, it, like we would walk in during training camp and uh, Mickey Marotti, who's the head strength coach would be at the player's entrance of the Woody and you, you would walk in, and if you were walking in alone, he'd make you wait until somebody else walked in. And then he would make you race to see who could drink a bottle of Gatorade the fastest. And we're talking like 6 a.m. He's making you compete against somebody else. So, you know, it's a competition, but it's also like he's making you think about hydration the moment you walk in. And so now there's a million things thrown at you, and you're like on edge. Um, and being on edge is, is a great way to make sure that you don't make mistakes. But at the same time, I think that the way that Ryan's doing it has been a good balance because there's still some players who are used to always being on edge now that can catch their breath. And I think it's given them a renewed um, sense of confidence and a, re a renewed sense of um, enjoyment from being around the Woody. It's wild, though. And, and I, I give Gene Smith all the credit in the world for being able to go out and in higher urban Meyer, which I think was obvious at the time, but then follow that up with Ryan day. Like, you know, I, I think the biggest reason some blue bloods fall off is because of coaching hires and Gene's done a great job with it. One other program in the East that I think a lot of people are curious about is Penn state last year. Well, everything that could go wrong went wrong and they started zero and five. And at that point you had to wonder, Oh, has there been a big talent drop off at Penn state that we weren't aware of, or is this just, opt-outs and and injuries and whatnot um seeing them uh in this preseason do you you know and i should also add in the years leading up to that that the the perception was they were so close to ohio state i mean they played three years in a row has always come down to one point um where is that gap right now in your mind yeah it's it was a rough year i think for penn state last year uh, I, I don't think that the recruiting rankings I don't know if they fully tell the story because you look at physically what the players look like and how they move around and everything. And you, you wouldn't say that the recruiting had dropped off just by some of the bodies that they have out there. Um, I think that they are the one team in the big 10 conference that you feel like can almost match Ohio state in terms of speed. Like they're the closest in terms of uh, being able to close that speed gap that Ohio state has right now, which is great. Um, you look at their secondary, they're lengthy, uh, so they'll be able to match up on the edges. They've got guys at linebacker who can run and hit, which is awesome. Um, the biggest thing for me when I evaluate that roster is what Sean Clifford is going to look like. And you got to give him the benefit of the doubt because I, I made the comment that I don't think the quarterback was necessarily where you wanted him to be at the point in training camp that we saw him. And a lot of people on Twitter were like, oh man, well, he's been a three-year starter and how can he not look good? And he just must suck in the set and the third. And it's like, no, he's had three coordinators in three seasons. That is the worst position to have to have three coordinators in three seasons. You have to know everything that's going on from the offensive line to the running backs, to the tight ends, to the wide receivers, to the quarterback position itself. You have to learn how to speak multiple different languages just in terms of the terminology that come with the different playbooks. You have to be in tune now 
um, to another guy and how he likes to call a game and game scenarios and everything else. Like that is one of the biggest things that can hurt the development of a quarterback. And so it's not his fault that he maybe isn't totally up to speed. You just hope that he can hit that learning curve sooner rather than later and go out there and make plays the way we saw him do a couple years ago. That would be my one thing. Everywhere else, I think they're pretty damn good. They got Jahan Dotson, who I think is one of the top guys in the conference overall. They've got four guys at running back who are going to be able to roll. I talked about their defense already. Like, it's going to be a good team. It'll just be, can can your quarterback go out there and ball out the way that he did a few years ago? All right, last question for you. The season kicks off. Biggest game of week zero. The Illinois team you talked about earlier against Scott Frost and Nebraska, and there's a lot of eyeballs on on the Huskers. Um, are you buying that the program can take a big step? Adrian Martinez has been there for a long time. Uh, are you buying the Huskers, and what, what should we expect from, from this game in Week Zero? It's a really great question because I think this goes to the thing that I've talked about before that you can probably apply to most of the schools in the conference. What's the quarterback play going to be? Because you've got Peters and Martinez, who are both players that I think can make a ton of plays, but they're both players who have also made some mistakes and they've turned the ball over. So something's got to break there. The, the biggest difference for me is I feel like Illinois is a squad that is reinvigorated, who has a head coach that is thinking on a different plane right now. And what I mean by that is all the things that he learned from being around one of the greatest coaches to ever do it and Bill Belichick, he's trying to figure out what level he needs to give to his team and his coaching staff so they can take the next step. And I think that he's playing with house money just in terms of going out there and trying to put the best product on the field, whereas Nebraska is probably going to be a lot tighter. You know, they, they understand that things are a little bit more urgent. Scott Frost, there's, you know, all the – investigation stuff and different things going on within his program is just a different feel between the two. And so if I had to make a prediction, I had to give an edge. I would say that this is a pretty talent equated game on the field. Just when you look at chess pieces, I think that the intangibles probably lean toward Illinois to go out there in maybe a little bit of a better headspace as a program and edge out a win that way. Um, this is huge for Scott Frost because if he can pull off a win, I think it's going to change the paradigm in which we talk about Nebraska football early on in the year, which he needs. If he loses this game, I mean, it's going to be really tough. It's going to be difficult. It's, I mean, media, I think people around the program, just everything is, is it's just going to ramp up and it's going to be really hard for him to recover. So I, I think it's a huge game just based off of that. I think, Nebraska has the tools to do it. I just think Illinois is in a better place right now, just in terms of being able to go out and execute. Very interesting. Uh, so, Stu, I'm so fired up we had Joshua on this episode, especially to kick off the season. Uh, I think I've told Stu this story in the past, and I first got to know Joshua. My uh, Fox sent me down there to do interviews the week of the Big Ten title game when the year they won it. And we had they gave us some really good players. Ezekiel Elliott, right when he was about to break out, and Taylor Decker, and I think Pat Elfline. But I remember really hitting it off with Joshua. You could tell he was he was really different. And um, it's not even a decade later, and he's been nominated for an Emmy, and he has uh, got all sorts of stuff, really cool things going on. And I know you have launched a podcast with your old teammate Evan Spencer. Um, we'll give you a chance to plug that. I think it's Wednesdays, right? Yep. So uh, we're coming out uh, on Wednesdays and we're releasing 11 episodes, but it's a first person account of the 2014 season told from our perspective. And it's a it's a really awesome project because I don't know if there have been many stories done like this on like a long form podcasting platform. But this story specifically really has been told yet. And not from a player's the introduction from when Urban came in in 2012 and a little background on that season, a little background on 2013, and then a deep dive into all of the ups and downs of the 2014 season. We're calling it Glory Days, Dreams and Nightmares, because it was a song we used to play in the locker room, Meek Mill song, but also 
when you characterize that season, we had some super backs and you have a player that uh, unfortunately commits suicide. There are some real nightmares in there and some sleepless nights that we had. So we're super excited about the project and we appreciate everybody's support. All right, Joshua, we say uh, safe travels as we see you getting ready to get back on the road. We appreciate <laughs> you taking the time and we'll hopefully see you uh, on the road pretty soon. Definitely. Thank you, Appreciate Josh. You guys. Yeah. Okay, Stu, some very interesting thoughts from our Big Ten expert. So your conference team-by-team uh, -team projections of what the records will be, both conference and overall, for the 2021 season are now out on The Athletic. And one of the schools that you had very far down, including finishing fifth, fifth, in the Big Ten East is the Michigan Wolverines. You have them going three and six in the league play and six and six, which, you know, indirectly probably doesn't make Jimmy Lake and the Washington fans feel all that great that you have them losing to a team that you think will be awful this year. Uh, you heard Joshua's thoughts on the Wolverines. Does that make you feel even more emboldened? I don't actually think this is all that bold a, proclam uh, a record because if you go back to last year, Michigan was two and four when their COVID cancellations started hitting. They were going to play Maryland, which I would have, you know, based on how those two teams played last year, it was probably a toss-up game, but we'll give them the win. And then at Ohio State and at Iowa, they were going to lose both of those. So they probably would have finished three and six in the Big Ten last year. And I, but you, but you have Penn State nine and three, and Penn State had a really dreadful COVID twenty twenty season, so. Are you hoping? But as Joshua mentioned, there were some extenuate, like everybody had to go through COVID, but some had it worse than others. You know, as we've talked about many, many times on here, Penn State had Micah Parsons opt out before the season and several other guys as well. Journey Brown, who was going to be their top running back, had health issues uh, before the season even started where he had to actually retire. Uh, Noah King gets hurt in the first game. So it was kind of an everything that could go wrong did go wrong. The difference between Penn State and Michigan is Penn State did get better. They hit rock bottom, and then they ended on a four-game winning streak. You know, the last time Michigan played, they lost 27-17 to that Penn State team. May I remind you, they also lost 49-11 to Wisconsin and 38-21 to Indiana. They also lost to a pretty bad Michigan State team. So I guess I would ask you, like, what about that personnel? You know, they, they, I just don't think they have the personnel on defense to have some sort of dramatic improvement. It's not like he brought in uh, some big wave of, of transfers here. Um, they strike me as like a 500 kind of team. I think they're better uh, on defense, especially in the front seven, than I think maybe some people are giving them credit for. Aiden Hutchinson. I'm more worried about the secondary and the I cornerbacks. Get, I, I would be worried about the year. cornerbacks. To me, that is the biggest the biggest concern. Aiden Hutchinson, though, could be an All-American. He is a dominant front seven player who didn't get to play much last year. I think he and Mike McDonald's defense as a stand-up edge guy can be a big-time playmaker. I think they will be very good on the defensive line. Now, you got to remember... Now, they had opt-outs, too, by the way. You're talking, I'm not saying, you know, Ambry Thomas, they really missed him. Daxton Hill will be one of the better uh, defensive backs in the Big Ten, if not the country, at safety. They're, I don't think they're going to be bad at safety because of the two guys they have there, and Brad Hawkins is, is pretty good, and Hill can be an All-American caliber player. It's corner that I would be worried about. Um, to me, I think there's two things. Like, I... I don't think Michigan is going to be dramatically better than your six and six. I think they can be an eight win team um, and maybe a little more than that, depending on if they can find an identity on offense. Because right now, you know, one of the things that, that Joshua hit on, which I think was true, even back when you had two years ago, um, you know, you had a quarterback who came in, you know, came out of high school as a five star guy, but they had a lot of turnovers. It was fumbles. It was just. Couldn't get out of their own way. Couldn't get any momentum. So I, I think if Cade McNamara, again, it's probably not what Michigan fans are going to want to hear because Jake Rudock was a, was a good quarterback. He wasn't a great one, but he was a good one. And at least he could operate the system. And at those times, those Michigan teams were 10-win caliber teams. They were not as good as Ohio State, but they were definitely top 15, top 20 teams. I think they have a good group of receivers 
I don't know if their running backs are going to be explosive or special. Uh, I know they have Donovan Edwards who could be that at some point because he is a game breaker. Blake Corum is a really good, talented kid. I just don't know if they're, to me, I think that if you look at them and you look at them through the prism of, man, they looked awful and their cornerbacks had no confidence against Michigan State, no doubt. I would agree with that. I think the question is, where is the head of the guys in the secondary? Like, I say this, like a couple of the guys I was around at and talked to um, at Michigan between Josh Ross at linebacker and Aiden Hutchinson, I think their vibe, their leadership, and that maybe the accountability they are talking about felt a little different than maybe what we heard from people around Michigan in the last year or two. Like something struck me about just just the way you like talk having a conversation with Josh Ross about why why you know when I say Michigan State and what happened in that game, um, if the if a lot of guys in the locker room feel the way he feels, I think they will be better than. I certainly think they'll be better in six and six. I'm not saying they'll beat Ohio State this year, but I think they will. They may surprise some people. All right, so let's say you know, let's say that you. So you said maybe eight and four. Yeah, I would say maybe eight and four. Are you including a win over Washington in that or no? I am. So here's here's how I looked at it because after you had sent me your um, number six and six, and I obviously I don't know what the six were, but their their home games are Western Michigan, NIU, Rutgers, Northwestern, Indiana, Washington. Um, of those games, I would say there's three games they definitely should win, and then three that would fit in the category of toss-ups. When I played it out, I have them beating Rutgers at home, then losing at Wisconsin, then winning, um, I actually have them losing at Nebraska, then beating Northwestern at home, so now they're at 2-2, two and two. beating Michigan State on the road, to go three and two, and that's when the bottom falls out because the back end of their schedule is tougher. Lose at Indiana, lose at Penn State, lose at Maryland, lose to Ohio. State. Okay, so I don't think they're going to beat Ohio State, and I don't definitely I don't think they're going to beat Penn State and State College. After that, I honestly think they are tossed. You think they're going to win at Wisconsin? No, I don't think they're going to win at Wisconsin. But the three games that I think would definitely fit into the category of toss ups: Nebraska on the road. Indiana at home and Maryland on the road. I could see them beating. Honestly, I can see them beating Nebraska, and I can see them beating Maryland. I could see them losing to Indiana. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or twenty-four-seven in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. When you look at my Big Ten standings, who is too high? Uh, who would you subtract a couple wins from? Okay, I'm going to say that I am not as high on Minnesota as you are. I think they'll be better than they were last year where they were really, really shaky. But I don't think I see them going eight and four. That seems a little overly optimistic to me. Um, I think they'll be much better than they were on defense last year because they were really bad on defense. But I don't know. I'm a little skeptical of what I think, how good they'll be in the pass game on offense. Like a couple of years ago where they had terrific receivers outside and Tanner Morgan had a really excellent 2019. I'm not... Not sure. I mean, also, obviously, they get out of the gate and they play Ohio State. I think they'll give Ohio State a game for a half, but after that, I don't, I don't think they keep up. And then I do think they'll win their three non other three non conference games, though, or their three non conference games. Fair enough. So um, we're gonna. I'm gonna be doing one of these conference previews, Power Five conference previews, every day this week. And if you can give me a second to plug the Athletics' wealth of uh, coverage. Uh, we have uh, we did this last year. It was fun. We do a Heisman draft among the national writers, and then see who uh, who had Devonte Smith. Did anybody have Devonte Smith last year? I had Jalen Waddle. Nobody drafted him. I had Jalen Waddle. Who won the Heisman uh, draft last year? 
<laughs> I don't remember, but you should still follow this year. Don't year's. remember, huh? With, with Matt Fortuna, David Oven, you, Chris Manini, Max Olson, Nicole Auerbach, Ari Wasserman, Andy Staples, and myself. Um, the whole staff will make their playoff picks uh, at the end of the week. I've got bowl projections next week. We have something really cool called the Hopometer. Uh, it's a survey. You fill it out, and, and we're going to get a gauge of which teams fans are feeling the most or least optimistic of their team. So if you haven't subscribed already, theathletic.com slash theaudible. For a discounted subscription. Speaking of which, Bruce had a very interesting story go up on Monday about the origins of Alabama's now lethal offense. And we've always heard, I've, I've certainly written or read a lot about the Lane Kiffin impact when he got there uh, in terms of shifting them to more of the uh, hurry up offense that, that Saban saw with Hugh Freeze and Kevin Sumlin and he wanted some of it himself. But the interesting thing about your story is it's not it it, it it it's not that Kiffin like brought that with him. He came there kind of running the same offense, and Saban told him to go go find out how to do this. Yeah, I think there's a lot of layers to this. One of the things that was fascinating was I mean, I talked to almost two dozen guys who either coach there now or have coached there, and it I think there's a lot of different versions of actually what happened, what was the impetus. Um, one of the things that I was told that was a, that actually had a big role in steering it was when Lane Kiffin's first season there, when Blake Sims beats out Jacob Coker, both quarterbacks had a really hard time and were struggling picking up that system. Remember, Jake Coker had transferred in. All, you know, he played for Jimbo Fisher at FSU. And Blake Sims had played... Uh, slot receiver, defensive back, running back, had been bounced all over the place. And at one point, I'll let people kind of read the, read into the weeds of this, but Lonnie Rosen, who's this psychi- psychiatry guru who, Michigan, Mich- who works at Michigan State, who has known Nick Saban for two decades, and Nick Saban trusts implicitly, had basically talked to the offensive staff and at one point asked, Saban, asked Lane Kiffin, okay, give me an example of one of your play calls. And, you know, from what I was told, Kiffin rattled off this, like, 20-syllable thing. And Lonnie Rosen was, like, apoplectic. And from that, you know, not long after that, all, a lot of analysts and guys on the offensive staff started uh, doing a lot of research on a lot of different stuff to come up with more fastballs, which were the one-word play calls, to get into the Alabama offense. And it evolved from there. So... I don't know. It was a, it was a really fascinating rabbit hole to go down, and I appreciate all the guys who took the time to kind of share their recollections of it. It was it was very interesting to 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 jump into. The funny thing is that there's so much that, that there was differing accounts entirely about whether Bill O'Brien had an influence in the original version or not. Now he's back as their OC, and everybody's wondering, you know, what's the what's? I mean, they, Saban always says like it's our offense, it's the Alabama offense. He almost makes it seem like the OCs are interchangeable, but clearly not. I mean, Sark put put a. You uh, went from that RPO like when Tua was the quarterback, it felt like almost every play was an RPO. Sark went to more of the play action. What do we think? And, and now Bill O'Brien takes over and has a new quarterback completely, and frankly, a lot of changeover on their offensive personnel. If you had to predict. What will be his biggest influence on the offense? That's a good question. I don't know. My gut is it would be more like like Brian Dayball, what he did bringing in the Patriots' past concepts. I think one of the things that 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 I was told was big with Sark was also he throttled down a little bit, and some of that I suspect had to do with the difference between the top first line receivers and what else he had. I think he wanted those guys out on the field and wanted them a little fresher than going fastball where you're just going things as fast as possible. I mean, one thing that was interesting when uh, uh, I did talk to Lane Kiffin over the weekend for this story, and one of the things that he got, you know, they used a bunch of Oregon's, old Chip Kelly Oregon stuff and Eagle stuff, and there was one particular play that that he got from Kelly for the national title game where they beat Clemson. It was a game out in Arizona. And it's the first touchdown of the game is a 50-yard touchdown run by Derrick Henry. And so I had talked to Chip Kelly and asked him about, 
you know, kind of how that came about and what the play was. But it's interesting. When you find it online, they're going so fast that the broadcast crew almost misses it because they go from a replay, all of a sudden the ball is snapped right at the spot. And I know if you're, you know, obviously if you're the producer of the game, you're probably having a heart attack because you would have missed, the, almost missed the, the beginning of the game's first touchdown because you were, in a stu- you know, coming out of a replay because they were going so fast. Um, all right. We're going to get to the mailbag here in a second. Uh, I know people don't like, you know, a lot of people don't like we ever even mentioned COVID on this podcast, but we are on the brink of the first games, and it is back in the news. Uh, first of all, Auburn coach Brian Harson is currently isolating. He has COVID. Um, and Andy Staples with a little bit of a, uh, an interesting scoop on Monday. So you've watched each of the conferences announce their forfeit policies. They're pretty universal if it's this year if a team can't field enough players because of a COVID outbreak they're going to have to forfeit uh clearly the leagues are trying to incentivize getting as many guys as possible vaccinated the sec one has an interesting little twist though if a forfeit or more than one forfeit were to cause uh the sec to have to give up some of its tv revenue the team that had to forfeit would take the 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 you know take the hit so not only would you take a loss You'd have to take a little bit of a financial loss as well. Um, I wonder, to me, that seems like, San- I mean, Sankey has not been shy about the importance of, of wanting these teams to get vaccinated. And a lot of them have. Lane Kiffin, 100% uh, on his team. I think Alabama and Georgia are very high. But um, it's it's an interesting, you know, that didn't come up, obviously, last year when a lot of games were canceled and a lot of conferences probably made less money. They weren't going to hold an individual school responsible for that, but clearly they feel pretty strongly this year that if you can't field enough players, that's your problem. I personally don't think there's going to be many, if any, forfeits. Obviously, it's not the vaccinated. I mean, we know vaccinated people can get um, COVID. That's happening. Breakthrough infections are happening plenty. But if you have a, most of your players vaccinated, the biggest difference between last year and this year is the contact tracing. How many times did, I felt like every week on Big Noon kickoff, you had to like track down how many players a team was going to be missing because of contact tracing. Uh, I don't believe there is contact tracing if you're vaccinated. So that should help keep the uh, number of players missing to a pretty modest amount. All right, Stu, we're getting to the mailbag. As always, send your questions with the audiblepod at gmail.com. This first question, Stu, is from Matt. Love listening to your show. Thank you, Matt. So my question is about Matt Campbell and the amount of love Iowa State is getting to start the year. Let's first rewind the clock. Going into the 2012 football season, K-State had previously won, had just won 10 games, had everyone returning on their team, and had Bill Snyder as their head football coach. We started the season, we started the season, he says, ranked in the low 20s with five Big 12 teams ahead of us. We went on to win the Big 12 that year. So fast forward to now, Iowa State is bringing everyone back and they had their first great season in an extremely weird college football season. However, they seem to be the darling of the national media. Oh, contraire, Matt. I'm looking at a man across the Zoom for me who is definitely not looking at them with loving eyes. As a case, a man who has them number seven in his preseason college, but thinks they have no chance of going to the playoff and winning a game. Who thinks they have no chance of winning a playoff game? Okay, Uh, most much like a hundred and twenty-five other college football programs. Go ahead. You're saying that it's just about just like everybody else do. You're, you're peeing in the oatmeal again. As a K-State fan, it's hard not to be jealous. Does Matt Campbell have a very good, good PR team? Does Bill Snyder just not play along with reporters enough? For two schools that feel very similar in certain ways, they couldn't be treated more differently. What gives, Stu? I found this question fascinating. I went back and looked up the 2012 early, uh, preseason AP poll. Uh, first of all, um, Bruce... Quick, off, without thinking about it, where do you think Ohio State was ranked in the 2012 preseason poll? They might have been unranked. Was that the uh, was that the first? That was the, the Luke Fickle. That was Urban's first oh, team. Okay, so then I would think they were they were on they couldn't play for the season though, right? So would they not be in one of the polls? No, they could be in the AP preseason. Okay, poll. so I would guess they were ranked like 19th. Oh wow, 
Yeah, 18. 18. I, I knew how much he loved Braxton Miller. I, I worked with him briefly at ESPN. I just remember him gushing about Braxton Miller when he was out. Just to show you college football, it does still go through some cycles. Number nine was South Carolina, and number 10 was Arkansas. Okay, the big 12 teams that were ahead. And I was surprised at this because I distinctly remember doing a story on K-State in 2011 when they won 10 games, and, and I think they started like 8-0. And it was like, oh, Bill Snyder still got it. Remember, he was pretty early into his second stint. So it surprises me they didn't get more respect going into the 2012 season. The Big 12 teams that were ranked ahead of them. Oklahoma at number four. Not a really surprise there. Uh, West Virginia in its first year in the Big 12, number 11. They were coming off that uh, 70 to 33 or 70. I don't remember the exact. I don't remember Clemson's score. I just remember West Virginia had 70. Yeah. Uh, Texas, number 15, Oklahoma State that had won the Big 12 the year before but lost Brandon Whedon and Justin Blackman, number 19. TCU, also in its first year in the Big 12, number 20. That's the one I'm a little baffled at. I think what happened was a combination of two things. Uh, A, people were really um, got ahead of themselves on West Virginia and TCU and underestimated that they were going to take a little time to adjust to their new conference. And then the difference between Matt Campbell and Bill Snyder is pretty simple to me. Bill Snyder was a proven commodity. He'd been doing it for a long time. Matt Campbell's still fairly new on the scene. He's the hot new coach. Um, this is uncharted territory for Iowa State, whereas Kansas State came, as we know, uh, uh, came very close to reaching the national title game at one point. So um, I, don't, I don't think it has anything to do with how the coaches interact with the media. It's not like I don't think... Uh, Matt Campbell is, is friendly with the media, but I don't think of him as like a Steve Spurrier type. Um, yeah, I just think it's that Snyder had been been there, done that, and Matt Campbell is new on the scene. And if you believe Bruce, he's the second coming of Vince Lombardi. Uh, and if you believe me, he's a very, very, very good coach who it would be a tremendous accomplishment if Iowa State, which has never won the Big 12, wins the Big 12 this year. I also think a couple of things. Um, that... Iowa State team right now, I mean, to me, clearly they are one of the two best programs in the conference. I feel like they have separated in the past year plus. Now, I know that they're not light years better than the rest of them, but I don't feel like the Big 12 at the top is as competitive as it was back when you, what you were just talking about, Stu, at, at this point. I think the Big 12 at that time was a lot more respected as a conference because they were not that far removed. I mean, they were still uh, not that far removed. They just lost Nebraska the year before, I think. I just think the respect level top to bottom was a lot higher. Well, we also, at that and point, so remember, at that see... point coming out of 2011, Texas had not just fallen off the map at Correct. that point. Oklahoma State had just finished number three in the country. Yeah. It, it was considered a tough conference. I think that respect has faded a lot since Oklahoma has become, you know, just dominating the conference. That being said, I actually think the Big 12 this year has a chance to be the second best conference in the country um, because we just went over the Big 10 and there just weren't a lot of teams that outside of Ohio State and maybe Wisconsin that, that give you like a lot of confidence. I'm very confident. So who are the teams that give you a lot of confidence beyond Oklahoma and Iowa State? I'm not sure who it's going to be exactly, but I think amongst a, a pretty deep group of Oklahoma State, uh, TCU, Texas, and possibly even West Virginia, one or more of those teams is going to emerge as a top 15 type team. Do you feel, you feel like Iowa State is, is considerably a notch better than Wisconsin, Iowa, yes. and Penn State? Yes. You feel Okay, I didn't... So you feel like the top two in the Big Twelve is consider is noticeably better than the top than whoever. Well, the top I think two that the, the top team in each conference, Oklahoma and Ohio State, are are on fairly even. I thought I thought you thought Wisconsin and Iowa State were comparable. Um, I do actually. Although I have Iowa State higher than Wisconsin, um, I think uh, I just. So where's the three, four, five? Well, I think it's, like? it's more about depth. I think the Big Twelve is going to go about seven deep in terms of they're not all going to finish in the top 25, but top 25 caliber teams. The Big really? Ten, which is a, has four more teams in it, so let's take that as a, as, a, as a factor. I think you've got Wisconsin, Iowa, Ohio State, Penn State, Indiana. Those are five, with maybe Minnesota as a sixth. 
Uh, you've got teams like Rutgers, Michigan State, Michigan, Maryland. Like you've just got more mediocre to bottom in the Big Ten than in the Big 12, where I think the only quote-unquote bad teams are Baylor, Texas Tech, and Kansas. Okay. By the way, they really whiffed, the voters really whiffed on that 2012 Kansas State team. I looked it up. He wasn't kidding. They had their whole offense coming back, led by Colin Klein and a receiver you may have heard of named Tyler Lockett. And then on defense, do you remember Arthur Brown? I do. It was Bryce Brown's brother. Yep. Do you remember Nigel Malone? Ty Zimmerman? Uh, I actually don't remember those players. Well, it was a pretty good team. I, I That year, I just happened to cover their, when they beat Oklahoma and when they beat West Virginia, who was very highly ranked. And then, but then I also had the Fiesta Bowl where they got their butts kicked by, uh, I still think the yeah, best. Chip, that was Chip yeah, Kelly's last game. I think that, I still think that was the best of his teams, the 2012 team, but they lost in overtime at home to um, Stanford and kept them out of the national title game. Next question comes from Rick Pieros in San Luis Obispo. Greetings, Bruce and Stu. I thoroughly enjoy the Audible and look forward to it each week. Thank you, Rick. However, as a Utah Ute fan, I am continually disappointed by the lack of any talk about the Utes as playoff contenders or dark horse. The only mention they seem to get is that, quote, they will contend for the South. Then the conversation inevitably turns to USC or ASU or Oregon. For a team that just missed the playoff a couple years ago, by laying an uncharacteristic egg against Oregon, they seem to get no respect and little mention what gives. Uh, I think they will be very good on both lines, and I think they will be very good on defense. But I don't know if they are going to be explosive enough. Uh, we, you and I both really like Britton Covey personally, but I just don't know if I... And, and look, Brant Keithy, when I remember talking to some coaches in the league, they think he is one of the most underrated players in the country. They can do a lot with him. Uh, move him around. He's a matchup nightmare. But I'm not sure I think they have an, enough firepower to be a real playoff contender. I don't know if they can be a playoff contender, but I certainly think they could win. I mean, they are my favorite to win the South, and then obviously that makes their chances of winning the Pac-12 very good, which they haven't actually done yet, which I think is part of the, you know, they continue to probably get less respect than they've earned Part of that is that laying the egg against Oregon or the year before when they scored three points against Washington in the Pac-12 title game. The one thing I'll say about Utah, well, two things. First of all, I assumed Charlie Brewer had already run away with the job. It has turned into a legit two-man race with Cam Rising, the former Texas quarterback. And as of this recording, Kyle Whittingham hasn't named the starter. Maybe it'll come here soon. I think that's probably a good sign because I think if there's somebody capable of possibly beating out a four-year Big 12 starter, that's a good sign. And then the other thing about Utah is they got a lot of possible impact transfers, whether it's not just Brewer, but TJ Pledger at running back. Theo Howard, who you may remember from UCLA, uh, the receiver, he transferred to Oklahoma last year but was hurt and barely played. Um, you talk about explosive, I feel like he could possibly be that guy for them. So I see them winning at least nine games and maybe more, and I think that's probably the respect that uh, Rick is looking for. I think also, you know, we should mention, you know, look, one of the rising stars in the Pac-12 was one of, was one of the best freshmen in the country last year, Ty Jordan, their terrific young yeah. running back who passed away. And, um, you know, I don't know how they, you know, what their answers are in terms of in the backfield going forward with, um, you know, I think he was going to be a, a, a big-time playmaker for them. And so we'll see a couple of years ago on that team that uh, that Rick mentioned, having been around that group, especially, I mean, they had a terrific running game. Tyler Huntley was a really good underrated college quarterback. Um, I think, you know, I don't know if they have that kind of capability in terms of like they want to be physical. They want to run the football like that. Um, we'll see. I mean, that, I don't know if they have that. I don't know if they're going to have that right now. The other thing I should just say about the I think the Pac-12 could be absolutely crazy this year because we are trying our best to assess teams that we saw play four to five games last year. Utah played five games, and like you said, the, the, the absolute revelation of their season was Ty Jordan, and you figured he'd be like the, the face of the team coming into this year, and then awful tragedy. So, you know, how do you, fork, 
how do you really know, like, for instance, Washington? A lot of people are very high on Washington. They played four games last year. Uh, Cal played four games last year. So to me, you're almost basing it on uh, a bunch of guys who you've barely seen play or, or guys who are like a Britton Covey who's been around forever. Uh, last one, Bruce from Ream, and thank you for telling us how you pronounce your name. Howdy, y'all. Love the show, but wanted to ask who... Who are some teams y'all think have the most difference between their floor and the ceiling this year? So a team that's floor is probably five wins, but the ceiling is 11, for example. As an LSU student, I say we definitely feel like we're in that category. I would agree with him. LSU could contend, could win the SEC, and I wouldn't be shocked, and could go five and seven, and I wouldn't be shocked. I think some of that has to do with you have new coordinators and they're unproven commodities at this point, right? So I, I'm excited. My TV crew is going to have their opener against UCLA, not this weekend, but next weekend. And that'll be a very intriguing matchup. Um, I would put, I would, let me think, I would put Penn State in that category, to be honest. Um, so much is dependent, as Joshua said, Sean Clifford. Uh, I don't know how good they are behind him if he does get injured also, but like third coordinator in three years, that's a tall order. I think they have some good, really good pieces around him. But, you know, if they if they don't get a lot better on a quarterback, I think the Big Ten is strong enough where they could have some battles. But I think they're if he does play really well, and he's played more than almost, you know, if you look at the teams that are real uh, Big Ten title contenders he's played more than any any quarterback that that's in there you know like he and tanner morgan so it's you know to me they they would be high on that list um i don't know if i would go you know like to me i don't know if i'd say old miss could be an 11 win team but i think they could be a nine or ten or they could be a five win team because they were so horrible on defense last year and quite honestly, Matt Corral does some terrific things, but he also had, he's had a couple of games where he's turned the ball over a ton, you know? So I think they are another one I would fit in the category of like, they could be all over the board because they were just so bad on defense. And I don't know that their personnel, on, like LSU was terrible on defense last year, but I know they have, they have a really good D-line and they have very talented corners. They should be a lot better on defense unless communication completely falls apart they get a lot of injuries. Ole Miss, I don't know that they have really some difference maker guys there to get significantly better on defense. But the expectations, there's a bunch of people who I think are picking Ole Miss to be a top 15 kind of team. So to me, I would put them definitely in that category. Um, and you know what? I would actually say UCLA might be a team that could be you know, wildly all over the place. We haven't seen them have a breakout year under Chip Kelly. They have a lot of guys back. They have a talented quarterback who has not been consistent in Dorian Thompson-Robinson. I think they can really run the football, but we need to see it. Um, to me, they could be a 10-win team, or they could probably have been a 5-win team. All right, I got several candidates in mind, um, including in the—this is telling me it's going to be an exciting season in the SEC because you we mentioned LSU— you mentioned Ole Miss. I got a couple more SEC teams to throw into the mix. One is Florida. Um, you know, I've, I've been feeling all along that they would take a little bit of a step back from last season uh, because of all the, the kind of the wipeout on offense. Uh, but I could be wrong. Dan Mullen's like, Do you think they, they could be a five-win team, though? Well, does it have to be those exact numbers? I'm thinking that. No, the, the, but I mean, the, do you think? I think they could. I think if, if. You think their ceiling is that low, though? Yeah, because if the defense is as bad as it was last year, and but without the Kyle Trask, you know, 40, 50 point a game offense, if it's more of an, a just okay offense with Emory Jones, then yeah, in that conference, absolutely, you could go six and six or so. But that's probably underselling Dan Mullen as a great offensive coach. He will probably have Emory think- Jones ready to go. I don't think you've looked at their schedule then. Because to me, unless they are horrific on offense, they have Florida Atlantic at home, USF, who's been really bad. They play Tennessee at home. Tennessee's been really bad. Uh, They get Vanderbilt at home. So right now they got four wins without really doing much of anything. And then they have South Carolina, who's 
who we don't think is going to be that good. Samford, who's there. And then Mizzou and Florida State. Like, I don't think they have to do all that much to get to seven wins. Like, they could be really bad on off. Like, they could be really underwhelming on offense. They're still probably going to win seven games. Probably, as I'm looking at it now. I don't think their I don't think their ceiling is actually that the low. the everything goes poss- could go wrong goes wrong scenario would be you lose obviously to Alabama. I think at Kentucky is a, <laughs> everything. You don't need everything to chalk go wrong that one up as an L regardless. And then the everything could go wrong scenario is you lose at Kentucky, which is certainly possible at LSU, Georgia. Um, I think Missouri on the road is not an automatic win, and then I have no idea whether they... So you, I mean, yeah, again, though. Like, no idea if Florida State will be a team that could win that game or not. The other SEC team I want to mention, I have absolutely no idea what to expect from Auburn. I, I, I don't... This isn't based on personnel. This is just based on what, what Brian Harson's going to be doing there is a kind of a complete mystery. Uh, you, you know, you're used to their identity under Gus Malzahn all these years. You tell me Auburn... Goes four and eight, I'll believe you. You tell me Auburn goes ten and two, I'll believe you. And then the other one is Washington, who a lot of people are very high on. Ryan Leaf put out his Pac-12 predictions on Twitter. He is Washington going twelve and zero. Um, but again, we watched them for four games last year. And the thing that concerns me about why well, I think they have a lot of talent. I think we've talked about this on here before. We're not all that high on either of their of Jimmy Lake's coordinator hires, John Donovan on offense, promoting Bob Gregory on defense. Um, Dylan Morris, I think, looked pretty good last year. Will he hold on to that job? I don't know. Do they have receivers? Uh, I think they'll be. I think I have. I'm going to pick them to go like nine and three or eight and four. But the fact that I had them losing to Michigan, and I don't think Michigan's going to be that good, tells you my confidence level in them. All right, Bruce. Hey, it's game week. We got into Nebraska, Illinois a little bit with Joshua, but it's not the only game here on week zero. Tell me. Which one of the other games you're most interested in? Okay, I am going to give you. Can I give you three? Okay, then just <laughs> there's only uh, five, so let, just tell us how you feel about all of them. I so I'm very curious about about Fresno State. I think Kellen DeBoer was a really good hire for people who were around, around him in the Big Ten when he was a coordinator there. Think he's really really good. He has a lot of skill guys. You remember Jake Hayner? He was the quarterback at Washington. He transferred there. Ronnie Rivers, really good running back. They have really good skill guys. By the way, Ty Jones, I think people remember him from Washington. He was a big receiver who never broke out. So this is Randy Etzel's first game in like almost two years for UConn. Um, it's going to be a rough road trip. But I think Fresno State is a team that we may be talking about as a top 25 team out of the Mountain West. I think they're going to be really good on offense. Um, the UConn part is just fascinating. I mean, they're almost like it's almost like when UAB shut down football and came back. UConn has been on the sideline for two years. The last time we saw them, they were absolutely terrible. Uh, so it's like how much how much improvement was Randy Etzel able to make, kind of behind the scenes, having a basically like two years of training camp. But just to remind you, the last time UConn played in 2019, they went two and ten. They lost, uh, let's see here, some of the highlights of that season, if you will. A 49-7 loss at Tulane. A 56-10 loss to Navy. A 48-3 loss to Cincinnati. And they ended it with a 49-17 loss to Temple. Their only wins that year were against Wagner and UMass. So, I mean, my guess is this won't be a particularly close game unless he's brought in some ringers since 2019. Well, he does have one of like one of my top freaks in the country. Travis Jones is a massive D lineman who NFL scouts are very interested in. Travis is going to have his hands full. He could be disrupting the whole interior of the line. I just think there's just too much for Fresno State. Um, two other quick ones. Keep an eye on UTEP at New Mexico State. Uh, Jonah Johnson has a big NFL arm. A lot of people compare him. He is the New Mexico State quarterback. Compare him to David Garrard. You remember him. So he has some connections also to David Garrard. He's one to watch. And then, Stu, um, a game that is in your backyard. I believe you will be covering the Southern Utah at San Jose State game for the Athletic. True? It hadn't even occurred to me that that game is here. Uh, What I'm puzzled about is (laughs) I teed you up to mention any game you want besides Nebraska-Illinois, and the only one you didn't mention was Hawaii-UCLA. 
because we've talked about UCLA a lot on this podcast, so I figured that was kind of off the board. I'm excited for you- any, any you know, San Jose State, Nick Starkle. I'm excited just to see them back on the field. UTEP, New Mexico State, I mean, I think the biggest storyline there is can you find this game on your television? Because it's on Bally Sports slash something called Flow Football. We come back on the podcast Monday. I want to know, Bruce, were you that all I'm going to want to know is, did you, were you able to watch your beloved UTEP New Mexico State game? I am going to have to peristyle it. I think I'm going to have to fire up peristyle for <laughs> periscope. the first time in like two years. Periscope, yes. yeah, peristyle. I think is at US. I don't even know um, if periscope exists anymore, but but I, I get what you're saying. I'm going to give you a name to know for when you do when you're at uh, at Spartan Stadium for the San Jose State game. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to read it slowly. La Akea Kaho Ohano Ohano Davis. He is a linebacker uh, for Southern Utah. And I probably should have him on my freaks list. I actually watched him last night. Um, freaky athlete, was a great track athlete from Hawaii. He could play in the Pac 12, I think. So Nick Starkle will probably be seeing a lot of him. Now, Southern Utah wasn't very good last year. They were 1-5, so I'm not going to try to sell you that they're going to have some breakout year, but keep an eye on him. If eight. you didn't see San Jose State last year, and I, don't, I bet a lot of people didn't, even though they were good because their season started so late and whatnot, you know, yeah, you know who Nick Starkle is, but they've got a defensive end, Cade Hall, who is just an absolute badass pass rusher. When I would watch them last year, it was hard to miss him. He ended up with 10 sacks in eight games. He's back for his umpteenth year, so uh, Mountain West Defensive Player of the Year. So if you do tune into that game at 10 p.m. Eastern on CBS Sports Network, keep an eye out for him. And by the way, uh, next week, week one, San Jose State at USC. Are you going to go to the game or not? Bruce, I'm not going to go to the game. I, uh, I'm i sorry about that. When, how many chances are you going to have to see Southern Utah play in person? It's not so much that. As how many, I, I think there will be more chances to see San Jose State in an actual competitive game. So, um, Anyway. Week zero, Stu. Be out there, man. I did go to a week zero San Jose State game in 2017. They hosted Charlie Strong's USF team. I got to see Quentin Flowers in the flesh. They, they, have you ever, have you, when's the last time you went to a game at San Jose State? Uh, do you remember Neil Perry? Yeah, that's what I thought you were going to say. That was a long time ago. Let me tell you something. Their well, stadium I, I is no nicer I, I now cannot, than it was then. I cannot, I cannot drive there. You could drive there. So it's, a, it's an interesting window into when they talk about the haves and have-nots. San Jose State is on the extreme end of have-nots. Their stadium is a high school stadium. When I went to that game in 2017, there were like two concession stands, and I went to one of them at halftime, and they were already out of all the food. Uh, it's it's kind of depressing. Now, that was when they were really bad. Maybe it'll be more fired up this year now that they're good, and obviously the fans can be back in the stands. So, I, I remember going through there. I went to see Charles Clark, who is a old, old Ole Miss player. I know he's a coach, and he was on Mike McIntyre's staff. I went in to see him. I didn't know Mike McIntyre at the time. They had just gone 1-12. For some reason, they played 13 games that year. And they just got slaughtered by like Alabama and Wisconsin. They played all these physical teams and then they like, you know, the roster was depleted. And then credit to McIntyre, he got it going. But um, you're right, it's hard to sustain at a place like that. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. When we come back next week, it will be week one. Can't wait. See you next time.